Ukraine's president asked Congress for help. Today, we get reaction from Indiana's congressional delegation, including my one-on-one -on -one interview with Senator Todd Young. Plus, Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett on the controversial bill sitting on the governor's desk that would get rid of gun permits in Indiana. All that and former Governor Mitch Daniels on the new debate over daylight saving time. Right now on this week's edition of In Focus. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll have the latest from the State House coming up, but we start with the reaction in Washington after Congress heard from Ukraine's president, who addressed lawmakers Wednesday to ask for help in their fight against this Russian invasion. Jesse Tunor has more from the nation's capital. Jesse. Zelensky brought up moments in U.S. history like Pearl Harbor and September 11th during his appeal to lawmakers for more help. And his message resonated across Washington. A standing ovation from Congress signaled the bipartisan U.S. support for Ukrainian President Zelensky and his country in their continued fight against Russia. The American people are helping not just Ukraine, but Europe and the world to keep the planet alive. And following Zelensky's pleas for more help. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the death. President Biden announced the U.S. will send an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine, including more anti-aircraft, anti-armor weapons, and drones. This could be a long and difficult battle, but the American people will be steadfast in our support of the people of Ukraine in the face of Putin's immoral, unethical attacks on civilian populations. The newly announced aid will come from the nearly $14 billion Congress just approved for Ukraine. It is unheard of to hear from a leader fighting for his life fighting for his country's future. We have to act and act quickly. It's not a matter of weeks, it's a matter of hours. Democrats like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Republicans like Ohio Senator Rob Portman remain united on further support for Ukrainians. But Washington is still split on whether to send them Polish fighter jets. President Biden has called the idea too risky. Javelins and stingers are defensive weapons. Uh, MiGs or planes are offensive weapons. Zelensky also acknowledged the broad U.S. opposition to his biggest request, a no-fly zone over his country, and offered an alternative, weapon systems to help fight Russian planes. In Washington, I'm Jesse Tenor. Jesse, thank you. Senator Mike Braun issued this statement saying the U.S. must continue to help them repel the Russian invaders with lethal defensive aid and sanctions that cripple Russia's ability to fund the war and isolate them from the world economy. The U.S. and NATO military leaders, he says, must be reminded to take every precaution to avoid escalations that will result in direct war with Russia. This week, I spoke one-on-one -on -one with Indiana Senator Todd Young. I asked him about Senator Braun's remarks and about President Zelensky's speech to Congress. The speech was effective, it was powerful, and uh, it was certainly timely. We've seen the Ukrainian people in recent days uh, uh, overperform all expectations in terms of their self-defense. Uh, we have helped uh, provide them lethal aid in, in order to fight off the Russian aggression, and, and we made them into, you might say, a porcupine, where they're very difficult to, to swallow from, uh, by Russia. And I think it's time we move into the next phase where they can actually resist the aggression of the Russians. And to that end, President Zelensky really pressed the Biden administration to provide them some uh, additional defense uh, assistance, including MiG aircraft, which I have advocated uh, that we transfer to them uh, very quickly. 
Senator Braun put out a statement saying U.S. and NATO military leaders should be reminded to take every precaution to avoid escalations that result in war with Russia and American soldiers being put in harm's way. You seem to be suggesting perhaps uh, the potential for somewhat uh, a further military uh, involvement or at least assistance at this point. Uh, further military assistance is what I'm advocating for. This should not be regarded as escalatory. In fact, if we let Vladimir Putin dictate what constitutes escalatory actions by the United States uh, just by mere words, then, of course, he's deterring us from defending the sovereignty of a free nation. So we mustn't allow that. But, of course, we must be responsible and modulated in our response. Transferring defense articles to the Ukrainian pilots uh, would be just that. Where do you think Americans are on this? That's pretty powerful to hear from uh, the, the president of a, of a country, a foreign country that's being invaded, that has been in so many people's hearts and minds. Uh, do you think the American people are ready for additional American involvement? Obviously, there's some measure of sacrifice the everyday Americans going through already in terms of the economic impact. Uh, what do you think people here at home are, are thinking and feeling about this war overseas? Well, I, as I visited with Hoosiers uh, over the weekend, I, I have to say they're in front of where the president is, and, and he, he really needs to catch up to the American people and their sentiment. They're with the Ukrainian people. They want to provide the Ukrainian people with whatever assistance we can provide so that they can carry on this fight. It's not clear to me that they're in favor of, of sending boots on the ground, and I certainly have not advocated for that. But the president. Uh, needs to provide more robust assistance. We've given him the tools to do so, and I'll continue to press him uh, in that regard. My interview there with Senator Todd Young. I was also able to speak with Congressman Andre Carson this week about the conflict. He praised President Zelensky and called for more pressure on Russia. I think America can and should use other measures to put extreme pressure on Russia. So we have to continue imposing sanctions on Russia providing aid to Ukraine and really working with our allies to punish Putin's government. Certainly the stakes are high right now. Are, are you satisfied with President Biden's handling of the situation so far? Yes, I think that President Biden has shown a tremendous amount of leadership, uh, having been a legislator, having been in Congress for decades. I think he understands the system. He's, he's built these kinds of relationships. Uh, the fact that we passed a bill that provides $13.6 billion to Ukrainians is, is, is monumental. Um, there's an additional $800 million that will go in aid. And we've also imposed, you know, very severe sanctions that are basically you know, crippling the Russian economy. All right. We also heard from other members of the state's congressional delegation, including Congressman Larry Bouchon and Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, who's from Ukraine. Why don't we put more support to show what we mean in the eastern flank? Because, you know, we have some troops in Germany. Why don't we move them forward to show that we are ready if any aggression happens and send a clear message that we are not going to be just playing this politics and, you know, standing there and just doing these statements mean nothing. Russians are not that dumb. Putin is, you know, understand what's happening. He understands that, we, oh, we're united. We're not show that united. Show your strength. Show leadership. Organize Europe. Push on EU and UK to have 
help Poland with this humanitarian crisis. I think we're going to have to look at even more sanctions, more deeper sanctions, particularly in their in their energy industry, because they depend on that for, to finance their war. And you know, we're going to also going to have to continue to build international coalitions. You know, I'm talking with people who, who normally might be on Putin's side, like the Chinese uh, and others, to try to get them to realize that uh, he's killing civilians for really no no reason. It continues to be a terrifying situation there. We'll discuss it all with our panel coming up. Also this week, we're talking about some of the key bills still sitting on Governor Holcomb's desk after this year's legislative session. This week, he vetoed one bill. We're still waiting to see if he'll sign the controversial permitless carry bill that would mean most Hoosiers could carry a gun without a license. We asked Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett about the implications of that bill and what it would mean in the fight against violent crime. Making it easier for people uh, to have access to guns or to carry guns or to obtain guns without necessarily uh, a permit uh, is a step in the wrong direction. Okay, this week we are also hearing from a former Indiana governor who first helped the state move to daylight saving time. So what does former Governor Mitch Daniels think about the possible move to make DST year-round? He spoke with our Kristen Escal. Kristen? More sunlight in the evenings would mean less sunlight in the mornings, and that could reignite a long-time debate. Should Indiana be on Eastern time, or should we turn the clocks back once and for all and align with the Central time zone? I didn't care if we were on Hawaiian time, as long as we were uh, in sync with the rest of the economy. Purdue University president and former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels led the push for Indiana to observe daylight saving time in 2005. The law took effect the following year. It had nothing to do with time zones. It had nothing to do with whether you like your daylight early or late. It was the rescheduled conference calls, the mistimed deliveries. Not everyone supported the idea. The Indiana Farm Bureau had several concerns. The work period for farmers shifts to the evening hours in the summer where they have other things that they may want to be involved in. Now that the U.S. Senate has passed a bill to make daylight saving time permanent, we could be ticking toward the return of that debate at the State House. State Representative Jerry Tor wrote Indiana's daylight saving law 17 years ago. If you talk about changing time zones, we don't have the ability to do that. So if we chose to opt out, if that's still available, we'd still be on the same time all year, just like all the other states. As for Daniels, he says he doesn't have a preference either way on which time zone Indiana aligns with. He says he was surprised the Senate voted to stay in daylight saving time permanently, but it's a move he believes could be beneficial. If the federal legislation is trying to bring, again, simplicity and uh, and uh, eliminate confusion, uh, that would be a positive, that would be a positive thing. Now, this bill wouldn't become law for quite some time. The House would still have to vote on the measure before it would head to the president's desk for his signature. In Indianapolis, I'm Kristen Escal. All right, Kristen, thanks. We'll talk about that with our panel coming up. Also ahead, we're learning more about the attorney general's trip to the border. We'll share what we've been told about the cost of that trip coming up next. All right, welcome back. Let's bring in our panel right now. With us today on Zoom, UND political science professor Dr. Laura Wilson and Abdul Hakim Shabazz from IndiePolitics.org. And here in studio, former state party chair for the Indiana Democrats, Robin Winston, and former GOP lawmaker Mike Murphy. All right, Robin, I'll start with you and your thoughts just on the horrendous situation in Ukraine, but also the, the impact of President Zelensky's words 
to Congress this week? Well, we're all troubled by what we see every night um, and every day. Uh, it's a human disaster, um, and it could have been avoided by one guy, Vladimir Putin. Uh, what Zelensky did coming to Congress was brilliant. He expanded his message, and I believe the American people are going to respond by sending the kind of arms that they need, but also a very measured engagement as we move forward. But we're facing democracy on the shelf right now, Dan. Mike, your response to all of that, Zelensky really also calling on President Biden uh, to, to lead the free world through this crisis. I think he's been a master PR person, almost Churchill-esque. But, you know, the average American doesn't have to just stand by and watch TV. They can do things. They can contribute to humanitarian efforts. They can contribute to the defense of Ukraine. I sent money to the Pravda Brewery in Lviv so they can make more Molotov cocktails. Yeah. I mean, it can be anything. Just get involved and get money going that direction. Lots of ways to help from here in Indiana, no doubt. Let's turn to Laura next. Laura, you know, a, a lot's been made of former President Trump's remarks on Vladimir Putin. Then Mike Pence said there should be no room in the party for Putin apologists. And now in an interview, as we look ahead to 2024 and the election here, former President Trump officially saying in an interview this past week that if he runs again, uh, that Mike Pence definitely will not be his running mate. Obviously, many reasons for the fallout in that relationship, most notably dating back to January 6th last year. And he more or less said that when he expanded on his answer. I don't think anyone's surprised by this. And in particular, it was an unusual match in the first place. Many of us, when we watched in 2016, you know, we looked at the two candidates, and sure, they were both in the same political party, but there were many differences between President Trump and Vice President Pence. I'm Obviously, they've had a political fallout of sorts, but I also think they represent different sections of the Republican Party and probably the, the chasm between the party that they will want to address before the 2024 election. Yeah. Finally, let's bring in Abdul and talk about the situation that our current governor is facing now at the Statehouse with this bill on his desk dealing with guns and permitless carry, something that Mayor Hogg said, some others in IMPD say they don't think uh, would be helpful here in the city of Indianapolis. Oh, you're absolutely right. And the governor basically has three choices when the uh, permitless carry bill uh, sits there on his desk. He can uh, sign it into law, he can veto it, or he can let it go into uh, effect without his signature. My money right now is that the governor probably does the latter one. Let it go to impact, let it go into effect without a signature because if he vetoes it, uh, it can be simply overrun with a 50 plus one uh, simple majority uh, in the legislature because Indiana has a weak gubernatorial uh, veto power. Uh, so my money is he lets it go into, into effect uh, without a signature, but they also do whatever they can uh, to protect law enforcement in a permitless carry universe. And we'll see what happens. Uh, the governor facing a Tuesday deadline on that bill. All right, also this week we got the records from the Attorney General's office on his trip to the border. AG Todd Rokita spending more than $2,700 for that trip to the U.S.-Mexican border in January that included a stop at a Donald Trump rally along the way. Uh, Robin, Mike, what do, you, what do you make of the public expenditure on this trip? Do you see a problem with it? Yeah, I see a problem with it a lot. Um, first off, this guy raises millions of dollars running for political office. He, this was a political trip. Uh, when Frank O'Bannon did this kind of work and I worked with him, we always paid for it out of our campaign funds. Uh, he could do that. It'd be very simple. $2,700 is not even as much as a donor could give to defray the cost of this, or he could do it as an as elected official himself. So he ought to just pay that. It's not a huge expenditure, but it, it certainly has caused some controversy. Yes, and it's not, it's not just the money. I certainly don't know all the facts, but, I, but there's some legitimate questions that anybody should be asking. 
and that is what imminent threat is there to the state of Indiana that caused him to go to the border, not for his first time, but I think at least his second time. I don't think things have changed that much. And also, what could he have been doing with his time to promote or defend the people of the state of Indiana uh, while he was, you know, driving to the border and back and stopping at a political rally? I think, you know, you can question judgment too, but that's, that's something I can't really impact. There are those in the Indiana Republican Party, though, who, who defend Rokita on this and think it wasn't a big deal. Oh, there's people sure. who defend Donald Trump to the nth yeah. degree. There's people who defend Todd Rokita. There are people who, you know, for 30 years defended Dan Burton, you know, to the nth degree. So, yeah, we are not a unified party. We have our factions just like the Democrats do. You guys aren't always unified either, I know. That's a different <laughs> a big different tent story. Yeah. A big tent. There, okay, <laughs> we, hear, we hear that from both parties a lot, right? All right, finally, let's talk about this daylight saving time issue. The Senate approving that measure to make it year-round. Uh, we'll see where this thing goes in the House and with the states. Laura, it's not often, though, that we see the Senate approve something uh, on a bipartisan, let alone uh, unanimously bipartisan vote. I was going to say, and how nicely that segues from both political parties themselves have factions within them. But in this case, the parties can actually come together and discuss the effectiveness of this. I think it is really interesting because at the federal level, this could simplify and make this more universal in terms of the time differences. Of course, we would still have different time zones, um, but to make things a little bit easier to understand. And right now, only Arizona and Hawaii don't abide by this. Um, so certainly an interesting point for conversation, but also really unique across the aisle uh, political movement. Right. But Abdul, there are obviously a lot of questions about how we'd actually implement this here. Would there be a push at the state house to, to try to, to, to essentially move our state to central time by not going along with this uh, DST year round? It seems like that debate never ends at the state house, even years after daylight saving time was first introduced. Yeah, because I was actually here for that first debate. I actually recall Mitch Daniels and Jerry Tor pushing uh, for Indiana to be on daylight saving time, not so much the Eastern or, or, or Central uh, time zone. Uh, like I said, those are two sort of separate, different debates here. I think Indiana's bigger debate isn't so much changing the clock as which time zone uh, should Indiana be because Indiana's on the far end of the Western time zone. But like Laura will tell you, we both teach college part time. Why is an 89 a B, not an A? Well, because the line's got to be drawn somewhere. Yeah, and, and Mike, you were in the state house when uh, daylight saving time was, came around. I was right in the middle of that, and yeah. a couple of my good friends lost their political careers over that vote. Wow. That's, how, that's how emotional it got, particularly for people in the western part of the state. Um, I, you know, I would have voted just to stay with the Cubs schedule if that was a possibility, <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> how do you see this playing? It's kind of an interesting thing anytime the Senate approves something unanimously, but it, it has a lot of potentially practical implications. Well, I mean, look, the Republicans are running the, the General Assembly, so it's more what are they going to do and where the governor is going to lead on this. I mean, clearly, the, the United States Senate unanimous other than a declaration of war, I can't think of any votes like that recently. Yeah. What so, else? Yeah, it, we'll see what happens there, right. no doubt. What else are you watching for quickly, Mike, at the State House with the governor still waiting? Uh, well, on I think the gun bill, yeah. I, I respectfully disagree with Abdul. I think he's, he's going to sign it, you quite frankly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think he's, you know, as I said, his wife is a certified NRA instructor, his state police uh, superintendent. He defended to, to at great lengths. And uh, I think uh, Governor Holcomb's pretty, pretty conservative. And this also preserves a political future for himself um, as um, should he run for it, Senate, should run something, for something else. else. The, the thing you have to remember, though, is when you're a lame duck governor, every day you're there, every morning when you walk in, you have less power than you did the day before.
we'll see what happens. Robin, right. Mike, Laura, Abdul, thank you all so much. We've got much more still ahead. We'll hear from yet another candidate looking to replace Congressman Trey Hollingsworth as I sit down with someone who once held that same seat in Congress 15 years ago. Stick around. We're back after this. Welcome back. As you know, we are your local election headquarters, and today we continue to cover the race for Congress and the massive primary in the 9th District to replace Trey Hollingsworth, who is not running for re-election. Last week, we spoke with one of the candidates, former State Senator Aaron Houchin. This week, I spoke with former Congressman Mike Sodrell, who's back this year to run for the seat he once held. Do you think your experience gives you a leg up here, even over the two state lawmakers who are, who are running? I think it does in, in uh, a lot because of the, the district when I served it ran all the way to Cincinnati, Dearborn, Ohio, Switzerland, Jefferson, you know, Franklin, Decatur were all in the ninth district. And now it has some of those counties and, back in. And then it got districted yeah. out, right. you know, for 10 years. Uh, it ran all the way up to Johnson County. It was kind of an I-65 district. Right. And now they've added back the eastern counties and took Johnson County out. So it, uh, it really it more resembles the, the district when I served it than it did in, in the interim. Obviously, Congress just very divided this day and age. What kind of representative would, would you be? Would you, would you try to cross that bridge? Is there a way to cross that divide and, and work across the aisle in modern American politics right now? Boy, it's, it's tough. You know, because the, the, that's why they call it the House of Representatives. The people that serve there are representative of the districts that sent them. And uh, we are divided as a people, you know, so it's uh, it's very difficult to get the elected representatives of the people to come together when the people are this divided. Uh, but, you know, we can work at it you know, and need to. All right, my interview there with Mike Sodrell. Stick around. We're back with this week's Winners and Losers next. Time for this week's Winners and Losers. Abdul, I'll start with you. My big winner, uh, Indiana's teachers. Uh, they were organized this past session. They got their job done. Uh, they stopped the CRT bill and some other bills that were bad for teachers. So I got to give teachers credit. Big win for them. Laura. I'd say anyone whose bracket isn't busted up to this point. Um, <laughs> and also future filmmakers coming to the Hoosier State with this major tax incentive signed into law by Governor Holcomb. It's a big win. Mike. Uh, two winners. First, Tony Samuel, who pushed through this film part of credit. That bill. Yes. Yep. After 34 years of people trying, and also any American who is helping to, to get money to Ukraine. Robin? Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett, who took on being a big brother to a kid. What a tremendous mentor. What a tremendous thing for young people. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We'll see you again next weekend.